High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, sock hoppers and greasers, those of you going off to college, and those of you staying at home. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the slumber party's at my place this evening. But first, we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment. And I would like to see the results. First of all, sorry for the late delivery. I usually like to get these out at midnight. Or I shouldn't even say that. I'm mandated to get these out at midnight. <laughs> but unfortunately, I had a lot of technical difficulties this week. So I edited everything early because this is a very busy week in my personal life. But we don't get personal on this show. We just get down to business. <laughs> Regardless, I edited everything. And it all disappeared somehow. Then I did it again, and it happened again. But I was undeterred because, you know, I love you slumberers out there. I do. I can say that. I can say I love you. But also, today's movie is an awesome movie. It's one of the best, in my opinion, high school movies out there. And it's an old one, too. It's a classic. It's American Graffiti, which I hope you watched for your homework. Because it's pretty cool. And right off the bat, I'm going to let you know, this is a two-parter. Because we have a lot to talk about on this one. Our guest today will be a familiar voice. Mike Manzi, of course, of Third Time's a Charm. And all the other wonderful shows on the Cage Club Podcast Network. And Chris Podcast, who's been on with us before, if you remember, for the episode on the myth of the American sleepover. And we have a blast talking about this film. Oh, by the way, did you listen to last week's episode on Angus? And when I say listen, I should ask too. Did you listen to the soundtrack of Angus? Kate Hudson is always awesome, and that soundtrack is still awesome. So, hope you enjoyed that as well. Just a couple reminders before we get into part one of our American Graffiti discussion. You can always follow us on social media. I'm loving your participation. Keep it going. Remember, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And of course, remember to subscribe wherever you're listening to us right now, whether that be Apple Podcasts, whether that be Google Play, whether that be Stitcher or Spotify. Leave us a review. Give us a good rating. And most importantly, tell a friend about all the wondery that is High School Slumber Party. Best way to spread the word, by telling a friend. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. Never forget that. A couple other notes because I don't want to forget these. 
I've been on a lot of podcasts on the Cage Club Podcast Network lately. Last Friday, you might have noticed, it was, it was a Friday. It was an official Friday because my other podcast that I host with the Foodie Films man himself, Kyle Reinfried, came out with an episode. P.S. I still love Hoffman. You want to check that out. It's the Philip Zimmer Hoffman podcast. But I was also featured on Hanks for the Memories, the Tom Hanks podcast on the network. And I talked about Philadelphia, which is a film that I really enjoy. Enjoy's a weird word for it, but you know what I mean. It's a really good film. Great performance. Great performances, I should say. So you want to check that out as well. But this Wednesday, what, two days ago now? Woo! As of the release, I know you can listen to this one after, but I was on the aforementioned Foodie Films man himself, Kyle Reinfried's podcast, his flagship now, Foodie Films, and we were talking about one of my favorite TV shows, Friends. Friends giving to be specific. And that's a two-parter as well. So this month on Foodie Films, check it out. Because we're talking about the first five Friends Thanksgiving episodes. And then we'll talk about the next five, I think, in like, yeah, next week. Woo. Oh, Thanksgiving's next week. Wow. This month is going by fast. Speaking of fast, are you ready to talk some fast cars and some George Lucas nostalgia? People forget that. American Graffiti is a George Lucas film, and we talk all about it here. Just like last week, we got a great soundtrack this week. So I'm going to leave you with Rock Around the Clock by, of course, Bill Haley and the Comets. You know the song. You know the drill. Pack your favorite jammies. Tell your mother you're sleeping over Brian's. Because we're about to get our party on. Class dismissed. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat bags on. So guys, this is a very important movie, a very important moment for High School Slumber Party. So we're just going to kind of let it roll here. Not too much bullshit. There might be some information dump because unlike a lot of the other films you guys have collectively been on, this film has a lot of scholarship. Maybe even too much, but I can't wait to talk about it. Um, So let's just jump into our intros. Mike Manzi being as you're the... uh, Historian, senior, assistant teacher, whatever you are these days, why don't you introduce yourself first? How's it going? Um, Mike Manzi, RHS, class of 97, go Maroons. Great. Mr. Podcast. Hey, Chris Podcasts, uh, class of 2004, uh, San Dimas High School football rules. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So we're talking about American Graffiti today. Big movie, 1973. Both of you. Where were you in '62, Brian? I know. I, I love. <laughs> and none of us were born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, classic. One of the older films we've done on the podcast. Both of you have already been on, so maybe not to talk about your high school experience so much. I mean, you can if you want to, but um, I guess this is such a car movie that you know all that cruising. Um, what was the car culture like at your respective high schools? I'm sure it wasn't anything like this. I'll sort of reiterate what I said back on the three-part Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift 
crossover extravaganza in which part two, um, I believe you hosted part two of that three-parter. And uh, there was a pretty big car culture at uh, RHS in 19, during the 1990s. And uh, out of all my friends, I was probably the least mechanic out of all of us. But my friends really cared about their cars and I thought their cars were really cool. They had like mean sounding Monte Carlos that were like one was called the Hellmobile. Um, <laughs> um, like my friends all had like older Mustangs and stuff. And then, you know, it was a pretty rich neighborhood on the other end. So there's a lot of, you know, daddies buying BMWs for their daughters and a lot of, you know, at that time, I guess, Ford Explorers were really big. And uh, I think like maybe the Saturn had just come out or something like that. But yeah, it was pretty heavy. And, you know, definitely my friends and I, we were cruising down Ridgewood Avenue on the regular Friday nights, especially before we were able to legally drink back then and, uh, you know, did our share of shoulder tapping. But yeah, this, you know, I feel like uh, it was similar in a lot of ways, but just like a different generation. How about you, Chris? Um, I forget if I said this when I was on previously, but I went to a, a private school that was... Uh, it had its contingency, uh, the Venn diagram, you know, of, of people who went there. One side was definitely rich kids. Uh, and um, the, the old saying was, if you turned left out of the school parking lot, you were a rich kid. If you turned right, you weren't because you were going towards you know the other side of the tracks, essentially. <laughs> but I, I remember being driven home uh, by like the one rich girl who, uh, who lived in our side. Uh, she would drive me and my friend back. And uh, she had like this bright cherry red BMW. I spent a uh, I spent a very terrifying 10 minutes as she tried to, for the first time in her life, in that car, drive in a, a snowstorm. Uh, oh, I was man. pretty oh, sure I was going to die in that moment, but uh, unfortunately I did not. And um, <laughs> it was right around Fast and the Furious, though. So we're talking, you know, early 2000s. There were, uh, I mean, a lot of these rich kids got Hummers and BMWs, and a lot of kids were, you know, quote unquote, souping up their cars. I remember a lot of spoilers on cars that should not have had uh, had spoilers. Um, a lot of a lot of burnouts <laughs> in the parking lot to just immediately go like twenty five on on the road. And I, I have a very uh, clear memory of uh, me and my douchebag friends <laughs> building a spoiler out of wood and an ironing board and placing it on oh the top God. of my Subaru Outback. Awesome! <laughs> amazing. Oh, that's amazing. I love I love the image of that. That's really cool. <laughs> I was just I was just kind of like I wasn't an outright asshole like a, a bully or anything like that. But I just like I just loved kind of laughing <laughs> it was just like observational humor is like something i discovered <laughs> between middle school and high school probably thanks to mystery science theater and i just like i just love to kind of like lightly rib everybody especially the rich kids because <laughs> they can never they can never take it oh that's awesome that's awesome uh so um chris last time you were on for the myth of the american sleepover one of your picks at the end of it was american graffiti and i hadn't seen american graffiti in ages and as i was watching it i I clicked so much to why it was a pick but this it felt like the first time watching this film for me i guess i was watching it with a little bit of new eyes um when was the first time you guys saw this film and you know what i guess both of you were very excited to be on this episode i guess why is that i think the first time i saw this i was in in high school uh because i was a a big fan of uh, another movie this director made that some of you may have heard of, uh, a little sci-fi masterpiece mm. called THX 1138. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, some of the kids in the audience <laughs> might not know this director, but that, that's a good one that they should see. 
And um, yeah, I went just through, through his old stuff at some point in high school when I got really into film. And I watched this and I didn't, I didn't love it at the time. I appreciated it, but I didn't love it. I guess I expected more flash from George Lucas, but uh, mm. um, it always kind of stuck with me, especially leaving high school. And uh, I don't think I revisited it between then, but it was really nice and, of course, nostalgic to go back to it now. How about you, Mike? I think I first found this film when I was like 13 or so, some, somewhere around there. Like, I couldn't drive yet or anything. And um, I'm not sure if I knew that um, at the time, I think I think what was happening was like I lived really close to Tower Records and a Tower Video, you know, so I just go there. We could like literally walk there. Like me and my neighbor would just walk there and rent everything. And I think we, like, picked this up and discovered together that, like, holy shit, George Lucas had, like, done stuff before Star Wars. Um, <laughs> I don't, we didn't quite discover THX 1138. I'll, I'll give credit to that to Late Night Encore when I was, like, more like 15 or 16. But, yeah, this movie is always just, uh, I've always revisited it, you know, throughout the years. My dad would always take me to, like, the car shows and stuff, and, you know, he was born in 42, so he was, like, 20 when this movie takes place, right? So this was definitely, um, like, his era. Um, I sort of, like, tried to adopt a lot of, like, 50s culture when I was a 90s punk. You know, it was just, like, the leather jacket and oh the my God, jeans you were a rockabilly. white shirt. <laughs> yeah, closer to that. More like, you know, stray cats and things. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but I love this movie, and um, there was always something I could never quite put my finger on until like I had gone you know through some film class and stuff. But I feel like this is one of the most naturalistic movies I'd ever seen in my entire life. Like it is just literally a step away from being a documentary. A, a lot of this feels very improv or caught on the fly or like you know they weren't even aware like maybe they're just running lines or something and it always does kind of feel new every time i watch it in a lot of ways and uh had a great time revisiting it for this show yeah no i mean something that i've always thought about this film and just i have to say is that how fascinated i am that what this was made in 73 it's about 1962 and they're so nostalgic about what 10 11 years before that but I, mm-hmm. I guess so much had happened, like Vietnam War, uh, Kennedy assassination, and just like the general 60s that it makes sense. But I don't have that same nostalgia for like 10, maybe maybe I do, I'm not sure, but I don't think I do, for like 10 years ago, what, 2009, you know? So that was always like fascinating to me. Over on Now and Again, we do talk about uh, <laughs> um, 2008 to 2010, kind of that era being like really great for pop music, like had the emergence of Rihanna and Lady Gaga. But in no way would I say that I was nostalgic for any of the aughts because there was just there was just no culture in that era. There's there was no <laughs> anything like what was the culture from the two thousands like yeah. uh, the puka shell necklaces, uh, frosted tips, and Jenkos. Uh, now Jenkos was probably the nineties, but it's just there's nothing. There's backwards red baseball caps. There it is. Yeah, I wonder if this was some kind of new emergence with this sort of class of filmmakers during this time where they were just more nostalgic and reflective on their youth and you know they were only like George Lucas was in his 20s when he did this right like he is fresh out of USC uh, might even still be like in USC or something or, like teaching or being a student aide but like this kind of comes up often on on shows like or from time to time in conversation, it's like, you know, nowadays how everyone's all nostalgic for the 80s, but that's like 30 years ago. And then when I was in the 90s growing up, everyone was nostalgic for the 60s. And it just seems like it's more, it's a larger gap 
now and might be getting bigger even you know and i think of back to the future and it's like whoa they're only going back 25 years and look how drastic and different it is and here it's kind of strange it's like they're only going back 10 11 like you say but it feels like a very different culture as uh, opposed to what's going on you know currently when this movie comes out oh absolutely so a lot of the beginning of this um show is going to be a bit of an information dump like i'm warning you but um i do this every week back of the VHS, and obviously this didn't straight come out on VHS, so this is a later VHS release. But here goes. This Academy Award-nominated classic, voted one of the American Film Institute's top 100 films of all time, features the coming of age of four teenagers on their last summer night before college. Um, little thing there. We see so many high school films, including The Myth of the American Sleepover, that are either the last day of summer or the last day of school or graduation. Like, that's, I would say 25% of them feel like they're on one of those two days, which I'm not complaining, I'm just saying. <clears throat> anyway, um, rediscover drag racing, inspiration point, and drive-ins all over again in this nostalgic look back at the early 60s the incredible soundtrack brings you the most memorable rock and roll hits of the era capture the heart of america's last age of in innocence with american graffiti i mean yeah like pretty pretty run-of-the-mill there well it's kind of hard to describe this movie right like what what really the there's no plot really uh you know like it's strange in that way like i feel like there weren't a lot of films in america at this time like this and you get more of them now. There's sort of like a weird Pulp Fiction thing going on at times I was feeling with like all these stories crossing over and interconnecting. And and even, you know, later I want to get way more into the music and sound, but I was even getting a, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood vibe with just like the music coming out of the radio and hearing the commercials and everything. So um, it is quite interesting the way this movie is sort of structured and, and displayed. Mike, I'm freaking out right here. I'm popping. I'm popping so hard because I have in my notes... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is uh, Quentin Tarantino's American Graffiti. I had the same. I had the same oh, reaction. Wow. I like it's, that. It's nostalgic, kind of. <laughs> it's mourning awesome. for a That's time awesome. that like only existed, or or most existed in the memory of like the filmmaker. Like it's it's such a personal film. Yeah. No. For sure. And the music, of course. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely going to have a big talk about the music here. Obviously, as you alluded to and mentioned, George Lucas, Star Wars. I think like kids growing up today maybe don't appreciate George Lucas and maybe they do have their reasons. Uh, <laughs> but for anyone who says that George Lucas like can't direct a film, which I've heard that criticism, like hashtag prequels, this is a good like counterbalance to that because this is like a damn good film. And it's like you said, so different to Star Wars that I don't know. I, I don't know if like kids growing up today even know that this film exists or that it is a George Lucas film. Yeah, I think what's even crazier is like George Lucas just has not directed a lot of stuff. And if you look at this compared to THX, I mean, it's incredible that the same guy directed those two movies, let alone comparing this to like the Star Wars stuff. Like I get Star Wars from this. Like Star Wars is like kind of this in space. Like you know, Harrison Ford is Han Solo prototype, or maybe even actually, I'd go, I'd go and say maybe the John Melner yeah. character is Han Solo, right? But mm. um, you know, like 
yeah, that sort of tough guy with the heart of gold, right? Because eventually, like, he, you know, warms up and, you know, you see his softer side and, and he's got his whole crew, right? <laughs> like, Toad is <laughs> Chewbacca and so forth and so on. You know, we can go down the line. But I, I get that through sort of the dynamic of the relationships here. And so much of the movie feels really natural between the actors. I think part of that is the acting and a lot of, um, I've read that he did a lot of one takes for scenes. Uh, or even just like improv stuff. Um, but like even, even the stuff that was written, it's, it's crazy to me that some of this really naturalistic dialogue is from like the I hate sand guy. Like this, <laughs> I, I, I've always said that like when you hit a certain amount of money, your brain just turns into mush. And that's, that's probably what happened with George Lucas. But like two best picture movies in his first three movies, like he's like a Hall of Fame quarterback that had like a really last, like a terrible run at the end, like Joe Montana going to the Chiefs, but like he's he's still a Hall of Fame quarterback, you know. Yeah, it's not always quantity. Sometimes it's quality, and you know he's definitely can you know do what he did and walk away and be like, look, I look what I did. It's enough. Um, and and I always feel like this movie, like you know, you mentioned like the writing or the dialogue and all this. Like it's it, in a lot of ways, it still to me feels coded in in ways that like. I can't even begin to believe sometimes like where scenes like cryptic things happen in the scene that don't really necessarily matter, but are there and add just like, you know, like depth to the world. Like the scene when um, the guy's talking to his, his old English teacher and like, you know, all the girls love him and they're hitting on him. But then at the end of the scene, like the one girl comes over and you're like, what is this about? But like the scene ends and he's off doing his thing. And that guy's, you know, presumably off in his own movie doing his thing with that girl and stuff. But like it's, but it's just like things like this happen throughout the movie that I don't know. Like, yeah, it's just, it feels so like well done basically. Oh yeah. No, uh, absolutely. Um, You mentioned uh, THX, of course, now, um, Coppola actually challenged George Lucas, again, Francis Ford Coppola, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> uh, Coppola actually challenged Lucas um, after THX to make a movie that would appeal more to the mainstream. So he decided to write a film about his teenage years in the early 60s in Modesto, California. Um, and that obviously became American Graffiti. I don't want to like you know say that he just wrote it because he actually hired two people, Gloria Katz and Willard. Yuck, I can't pronounce this guy's name. Uh, they contributed to the screenplay as well, but it's obviously largely his story. And again, this, as we said in the kind of VHS back, this got nominated for uh, Best Picture at the Oscars, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Film Editing. And actually won the Golden Globe for Best Picture in a Musical or Comedy. It's rare on wow. High School Slumber Party that we get such a award-nominated film, so I, I have Such to... Such prestige. Yeah, I have to point it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm podcasting in black tie currently. <laughs> <laughs> Did it say anywhere in your notes, like, this is super autobiographical. I feel like Coppola has been very jealous of this movie when he talks about, like, doing personal films, personal films and stuff. He could never really quite get this small as his friend George Lucas. Hearing about that bet is, like, even funnier to me now, but does it say anything in there? Like, George Lucas it was, like... You know, he almost died as, like, a teenager. Like, he got into a horrible drag 
accident like I think he like crashed into a tree um, and like that's what sort of set him on the path to go to film school instead was um, the accident but uh, when I heard that I was like oh my gosh like this just makes even more sense like he's a character in this he's literally in this movie somewhere well actually he based Kurt uh, Richard Dreyfus after himself at USC he based uh, John Milner after like that version of himself like the cruiser cool guy and he based terry the toad on his nerdy high school freshman year self so he he kind of divided himself in three for the basing of the characters in this film which i i found interesting and i get it too you know <laughs> um couple background notes as well that i wanted to talk about you know it's a relatively low budget film even for the time but the, stu- the first studio um, that he brought it to, I think it was United Artists, rejected this and Star Wars, actually. But this based on the fact that, not like any of the filming, but the fact that the soundtrack would pretty much cost the entire amount of the filming, and they were like, no way. But he, you know, he eventually got it made, but it was supposed to be a made-for-TV movie until pretty much Coppola was starting to get, because Coppola is one of the producers, and after he started getting a claim for The Godfather, they're like, oh, we can put in front of it from the man who brought you The Godfather. So they gave him a little bit more money for that music and to make it a theatrical release, which, you know, obviously helped. That extra money or something or whatever, they were able to bring in, um, like, renowned cinematographer Haskell Wexler to come in and, like, supervise the shoot, and that's why it looks, like, incredible to me, at least, like, to see a movie shot at night look this great and this bright from that, from back then, and moving the whole time, like, between cars and stuff, like, I just love the way this movie looks, so, yeah, uh, I wonder, I wonder if, like, they're like, hey, let's, like, really beef this up. You know, let's like pour some some juice on. Game of Thrones could take some notes on some night filming here. <laughs> Shots <Nice>. fired. A <laughs> um, couple other fun things I want to mention before we do our deep dive. Apparently the word graffiti wasn't a common term when this film came out. And a lot of people were confusing it with perhaps an Italian film. Because, you know, I guess graffiti being an Italian word. Um, they wanted uh, him to change the title. One of the titles like Coppola suggested was Rock Around the Block which I'm glad they didn't yeah. change it to. Um, what else? Oh, so they couldn't... Was Happy Days one of the names that they went with? Because it really feels... Funny yeah, you say that. A lot of people think or that Happy Days is a derivative of this film or like was inspired by this film. And it definitely helped. Also, like having Richie Cunningham in your cast definitely like would make people think that. But the pilot for Happy Days actually came out, I think, a year or two before this. I think there was just a general nostalgia for happier times, you know, no pun intended, uh, at, around this time. But people have always associated this film with Happy Days. Oh, so... Lucas didn't want to shoot in Modesto because they said he'd changed too much. So they picked this town called San Rafael, but they were kicked out of San Rafael after one day for a number of disturbing the peace situations, including the crew growing their own marijuana and just the commotion in what? town. Yeah, <laughs> Growing like growing it? That's what I, I read. I don't know how that happens in a day, but maybe they brought their you know hydroponics over. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so they actually uh, moved the filming to Petaluma, California, and I mention that because we've talked about Petaluma uh, on this podcast before with um, guest Kate Hudson, who I think has family there, but Peggy Sue Got Married was also filmed there, and apparently the downtown still looks like that today, so 
definitely like a town I want to visit one day. Sorry for that big fact dump, but oh, we we gotta talk cast quickly and feel free to drop in at any any moment. Um, I'm not gonna go through everybody, but of course we mentioned Richard Dreyfus. People often yeah. people often say that I look like Richard Dreyfus in Jaws. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can see that now. And I don't. I never. Heard... <laughs> I don't take offense. I hope you don't mind. No, okay, I don't take good. offense. I love Jaws, so that's okay. I think this is my favorite of his performances. Like when he, especially from all that time he spends with the pharaohs, that that might be some of my favorite parts of this movie. But I just love him in this. I mean, yeah. later on, I feel like he just gets like a little too. I don't know. He has too many little like ticks and stuff that later on, I think like he overworks or something. But here is just like a very early, very, very sort of tempered performance. I liked it. Mike, I guess you won't be signing up for Mr. Holland's opus on this podcast. Oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> I've seen it. I don't need to go back. <laughs> I'm more of a what about Bob guy myself. <laughs> Fair. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, we have little Ronnie Howard in this film. Um, obviously, uh, you know, everyone knows Ron Howard, but he was really, really excited to do this film because he really wanted to break from Opie and the Andy Griffith show. And again, like we said, this predates Happy Days. I, I, I thought it was really nice to see Ron Howard play a character who was kind of a jerk off, honestly, because he's always like, he's kind of in my head. He's always like yeah. the, the, the chipper do-gooder, you know, Happy Days, like everyone's favorite son kind of character. And this like, there's like a little bit of that in it, but it's also like, he's an asshole a lot. Um, so it was, it was a nice different take on Ron Howard, who I generally don't enjoy seeing as an actor ever. Um, I just, there's something about his face that I just <laughs> don't like, I find unappealing, but, um, you know, decent director. But, um, yeah, it was nice seeing a uh, change of pace for him. I especially like, um, that scene at the end, towards the end when he agrees to meet the waitress, um, at after hours and stuff, you know, because like he's been thinking about getting back with his girlfriend the whole movie, you know, like he's screwed up, but um, but he's still like in the back of his head, he's like, yeah, I'll come over, and then she says something really weird, like it could be for fun, not like last time. I was like, this is insane. This movie's great. Like I don't even know what she's talking about, but I love it. Um, and then, but then he does get up and he's like, yeah, you know what? I got to get up early tomorrow and all that kind of thing. But like, I did like that he. Um, you know, like Chris says, like he's not Richie Cunningham here, and um, you know he, if, you know, it's hard to know because he looks like him. So, like throughout the movie, it's very interesting to watch this guy. Oh yeah, no, for sure, and it's, like yeah, this might be my favorite Ron Howard performance. Not that I know a lot of them, and not counting, and, you know, and he he ended up at least finishing solo, and we have the original Han Solo in this film. Thought that was, that was interesting. <laughs> Um, and probably the only Han Solo, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> Paul Lamatt plays John Milner. Charles Martin Smith plays Terry the Toad. Both, again, kind of our main characters here. Uh, who else? Oh, Cindy Williams played Laurie, and she would go on to play Shirley from Laverne and Shirley, which is kind of in the Happy Days universe. So, I, I don't know. I guess that makes sense. Is, is, wait, that's, the, that's Ron Howard's girlfriend, right? Yeah. Okay, I was getting, I really enjoyed her performance. I think she was the best performer in this entire movie, honestly. Um, her, just the opening scene where she is, like, the, the expressions on her face when he's saying, we can date other people while I'm in college, it's it's so good. And she carries that throughout the whole movie. Um, I also got real, like, big Talia Shire vibes oh, from her. Like, yeah. I, you could see in 10 years, like, she uh, moves to Philly, she starts working in the pet <laughs> shop, her alcoholic brother. Like, it, there's... There's like I've I've really got those vibes. Oh man, from that's her. great. 
<laughs> More, I, I can maybe not Talia Shire, but like Adrian for sure. Uh, and I, when I read that um, there was a Best Supporting Actress nomination, I thought it was her, but it's actually Candy Clark who was nominated, who's like yeah. the blonde that is goes around with Terry the Toad. And I was like really surprised by that. Not that she does a bad job. I just, you know, like doesn't seem yeah. like an Oscar nominated performance. No, if you, if you had to rank the the three I, female leads in this movie, I would have gone with with her and then the little girl before I even really thought about. The blonde with the beehive. Candy Clark, I mean, she recently came back in Twin Peaks The Return, which I just recently finished rewatching. She's uh Sheriff Truman's wife in that um not not the original Sheriff Truman, but the new Sheriff Truman. Gotcha. Know her from much other stuff. I think she's great here. I found out that like she was um with um Jack Nicholson. Oh, around this time like for a while right i think like they were a very famous couple uh at this time um but uh, yeah like i've i was enamored with her when i was a teenager like i don't know there's just something about that whole sort of because you know the movie's sort of disarming like like what they do with ron howard they kind of do with her too because when you're introduced to her and the way she looks you're like oh she should be at the sock hop like she's a nice girl like all this stuff and it turns out like all she wants to do is get drunk and make out uh, like, you know, she's just a normal person. It's, you know, and I love that about this movie. It's like, oh, you might remember it as such an innocent time, but actually, you know, these kids are running around at three, four in the morning doing this entire, doing all this stuff. Yeah, no, that, that, I definitely got that vibe from her. Again, I was just surprised that she was the one nominated. There's no knock to her. If you're listening, Candy Clark, all the love. Mackenzie Phillips was the one who played the little girl, Carol. And, you know, again, I thought she did a great mm-hmm. job. She's the daughter of John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, and they, mm-hmm. they didn't realize that California law mandated that a parent needed to be there if you were under whatever age. So uh, her parents actually had to sign her guardianship over to the producers of this film. Wow. So, so wow. they were technically her legal guardians <laughs> while shooting, which I'm like, whoa. Uncle Francis? Is that Uncle Francis? Could you imagine? That would be actually kind of... I'd love that, actually. You know, he'd probably bring lots of pasta and all this kind of stuff. He'd be like, come home with me. Come home with me. I'll feed you. I'll feed you. I just, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting fact. Like, because again, uh, her parents were touring and such, so it just wasn't feasible. But but again, for her age, I think she does a really good job. Oh, yeah. She was she was a blast. I know it's like early and, and like the precocious kid wasn't as much of a trope, but like she does it without being obnoxious. And, um, yeah, it was maybe my favorite pair other than Ron Howard and his, uh, and his girlfriend were, were her and the, the Fonzie-esque, uh, drag racer. Like, I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, I loved it. I think it might be my favorite in the film. And I didn't expect to. I really didn't. I thought, I'm like, oh, here we go. This, like, typical tough guy and the softy little girl kind of thing. But I ended up really, really liking this arc. Um, and we'll get into it a little later. Who else should I mention? Oh, I mean, Wolfman Jack plays himself. Oh my God, the Wolfman. <laughs> He's the best. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Harrison Ford, of course, as we mentioned. Um, and he was still in his Carpenter days, his ha- acting slash Carpenter days. And he really didn't want to be in the film or care about it. And they asked him to cut his hair. <laughs> he didn't want to cut his hair. So they agreed on the Stetson hat as a compromise. You know, I'm just gonna throw it out there. I don't, I don't think he's good in this. Like, he is literally just a face to me in this, like a face and a hat or something. Well, he's, you know, I guess he's supposed to be what, like the rival, right? Like the Black yeah. Knight or something like that rolls into town and challenges and stuff. So he's not really supposed to be too much of a persona. But like, 
I don't know. I, every time I watch this, I kind of cringe, especially kind of when he starts doing the opera thing. I'm like, that's your improving? Like, that's what you're doing? I was like, I don't know, man. So, so you're saying Harrison Ford mailed it in? I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying it feels like he didn't want to be there, and you're saying yeah, he no. didn't, and it's coming across. Out of everybody there, you know, that's the only kind. <laughs> But I guess that presence works, right? Because he's supposed to be like the only sort of malevolent force like running throughout this whole thing. I wonder how we would feel if we just didn't know who Harrison Ford was, you know? It it was hard to remove myself from like Harrison Ford, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, he's too well known to go back this far and be like, oh man, he's basically just this bit part. Yeah, and I I think usually, and to let's just bring up another movie that we can compare this to, Days and Confused. I think now you can kind of go back with hindsight and see some of the people who got famous off of that. And even if it's just kind of your brain saying, like, oh, this person's famous now, you know, you might say something like, oh, I, I could see, like, they had some potential in their first movie, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, like, that just doesn't happen here. <laughs> like, he's, he's nothing. He's he's so stock and, uh, yeah, mailing it in, I think. He's he's basically doing what Harrison Ford now is doing. He's, <laughs> like, completely <laughs> sleepwalking through this movie. Yeah, you just get a sense that, like, Harrison Ford just does not like acting. Like, as weird as that sounds. <laughs> Maybe in his prime, like, he just was just in, in a zone. But, again, now and then, that's what it seems like. And, and that's every indication from, like, behind-the-scenes stuff. The only other person I'll mention, unless you guys want to mention someone else here, and I forgot them, is briefly Suzanne Summers is the blonde in the T-Bird. Um, you know her from Three's Company, Step by Step, or Mike, your favorite, the Thighmaster commercials. <laughs> well, wasn't she in um, All in the Family was too? Wasn't that her way back, way back then? I'm not. I, sh- I thought I so. Uh, but I just bring her character up in case we forget it. That the original plan of Lucas's was to make her a figment of uh, Richard Dreyfuss's uh, imagination, and that there was a scene actually written mm. where she would he would like find her and she would just disappear into thin air. I thought that was huh. interesting. <laughs> I don't. I don't love that. Uh, no, side I note: Did you get? Did you get um, Can Hardly Wait vibes from the whole, like, getting advice from the radio guy kind of chasing the idealized girl? Absolutely. And then, of course, the blonde the blonde girl you're chasing also comes up with the American Sleepover. Check out that episode. <laughs> it's the it's the white whale, right? Like, she's even driving a white car. I was thinking the shark from Jaws later <laughs> on for some reason, but I don't know. Yeah, I like, I love how it's like this mythical, you know, sort of thing going on through Kurt's story. He's, just, he's always chasing that, and he's going to be chasing it forever you brought up can't hardly wait and i strangely and maybe it's blasphemous to even say but i got a lot of can't hardly wait vibes which is very funny but especially with, especially with that storyline well well yeah i think you know you mentioned in like the, that dazed and confused you know even like super bad like yeah. this is sort of like developed into the teenage structure to a degree like this is a genre now i think of teenage movies which is just the hangout flick um, kind of thing where it's just like not much as maybe there's a party going on we'll see like you know we're not sure like uh, but you know there's some kind of big climax at the end eventually and everybody's sort of there and it all merges together and uh, yeah so like I think I don't know if this, this is the first but um, it's definitely one of the most influential so then this is basically like the Genghis Khan of high school movies like all of the like one eighth of all high school movies has some Genghis Khan genetics. Like, it's like this, this is so influential. Even even things yes, this... not in the genre, like the um the epilogue, like showing what happened to the people. That is in so much now, and that is 
uh, parodied and and copied. And another thing that just took place that took from this movie is so influential in so many ways. Yeah, it's crazy. no, and that's why it's like almost weird going back because I think, like I said, a lot of it might seem like. It's tropey, but it's not. If this isn't the oldest film I've done on the show so far, it's w- certainly one of the oldest. It mu- it's definitely in the top three. I'd have to go back and check my list. But, it, it, you know, this is a precursor to so much of what we do. And, and, Mike, you mentioned the whole party movie thing, too. And while this doesn't take place, like, in a house party, essentially the party is just cruising around the town. And run, running into mm-hmm. people is like running into them in their cars and the the streets of the town are sort of like the house party and i love it like it had so much more dna of high school films than that i thought like considering i've been watching at least one a week if not more for the last year and a half and such that now when i'm seeing one that like does the i guess typical things but does them well i get so excited so i'm really amped up to like dig into the nitty-gritty when it comes to this film I I loved the, um, and I agree with what you said, and something that jumped out to me in regards to that was I loved all of the little individual characters that just, like, showed up. for They were just single-serving, like one guy yelling out of a car and having a conversation, a girl at the, the, the drive-thru. These, they all felt like real characters, like the people that you went to high school with that you'll probably never see again, but, like, you have a memory of them. It was a lot like that, and it, again, felt so naturalistic. It didn't feel like extras, you know? It felt like they were part of that world, and it was lived in. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, it just... It takes place, what, over a night? But... And, Mike, you mentioned it, too, a little bit. Like, you get little snippets of potential stories, and each one of them could go off into their own theoretical movie if we really wanted them to. And that's just a sign of good character work. Yeah, and there's so many great little moments I forgot about that I just started laughing out loud like when um, you know people just pull up alongside each other and start like you know being like hey you want to lift anyone want to lift or ride or something or when they're just like you know talking about like your mother your mother this your mother that like all the you know just like shit talking each other and just cruising and chilling and yeah it is a lot like a big outdoor party you know and you get picked up and dropped off here and there and have to like make your way back to the drive-through um diner and everything like that's just great that's almost like the hub you know like the uh home base or something like that so yeah mel's diner um i actually went to a replica of mel's diner in san francisco but i had no idea like just because it was close to our hotel and that's where i looked like they served breakfast like until i went inside and saw like the american graffiti stuff but again this movie doesn't take place in san francisco i didn't feel like i was at mel's diner but just thought it was interesting um but you know let's get into it so what'd you like about i guess the opening of this film or disliked or whatever hey what do you say kurt last night in town you guys gonna have a little bash before you leave moose have been looking for you all day he got worried thought you were trying to avoid him or something what do you got oh great that's two thousand dollars man two thousand dollars mr jennings gave it to me to give to you uh, he says he's sorry it's so late, but it's the first scholarship the Moose Lodge has given out. And he uh, says they're all very proud of you back at the Lodge. Cute. Why don't you hold it for me for a while? Hey, I don't want it. Take it. It's yours. I'll take it. Listen, your sister calls. I'll talk to you. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. She can wait. We'll make it short and sweet, though, huh? Listen, uh, 
I don't think I'm going to be going tomorrow. Come on, what are you talking about? Well, I was thinking I could wait a year, you know, go to city for a while. You chicken thing. Oh, wait a minute. After all we went through to get accepted, we're finally getting out of this turkey town, and now you want to crawl back into your cell, right? You want to end up like John? You just can't stay 17 forever. Just, You've got to get I that need, through your head. I just need some time. I gotta go talk to Lori. Now take it. Take it. Now, we're leaving in the morning, all right? We're leaving in the morning. Really great opening shot of the diner, which I think I found out that Sky was one of George Lucas's first experiments in screwing around with his old movies. That's a digital replacement on all the DVD copies, so you got to go back to the first print of the VHS if you want to see the original sort of blue yeah. sky at <sighs> night instead of this sort of reddish one really? um, at night. Yep. Yeah, you know, sorry to say that, and it kills me every time, but uh, it's, you know, it's just more of his meddling that he loved to do during the oh 90s. And you know, 2000s. I did think it was weird when the Bantha walked in front of the car at the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But what I did, what's great, though, what I wanted to actually just start with is, um, you know, like the next shot, you see uh, Ron Howard leaning against his car and he's like really cool and ev- all, everyone thinks he's like really cool guy in this movie. And then you see Toad come in on his Vespa and he can't even like park his Vespa. You know, it's just this great character development right out of the gate and it's all body language. They haven't even like said a word yet. And then Kurt's going to like come over on his own and he's going to be on his own for most of the movie. Um and like you know, park his little blue car that he comes to back to at the very, very end and stuff. So I, I just love that, you know, just right out of the gate. Like I'm, I'm picking up stuff. The apparently the little Vespa crash was um, not planned. Apparently the guy just couldn't drive it very well. And <laughs> Lucas, good decision making. Lucas uh, kept it in because it's such a great introduction to Toad. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is, and that's really funny to learn. I don't know, like. I, I just love the image of just, like, a Vespa in this time. I just never pictured, like, the hot rod time and a Vespa being there. So that's what – it made it so great uh, great for Toad. So which uh, which character do you want to talk about first, really? Who do you want to focus on? Uh, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's your show, but um... – I don't know. We'll pick Richie Cunningham. Sure. Okay. All right, so uh, I guess – What'd you like about his arc? What are some uh, beats of his that uh, you enjoyed? I'm trying to find his actual name so we don't just keep calling him Richie Cunningham. <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, Steve. Steve, yes, Steve. Okay. Uh, yeah, he, we, he starts out, like we are kind of saying, uh, with finding out that Ron Howard's not playing a super nice guy, even though he's like, I think they mentioned he was like the class president. So he's definitely like, he's still in the Ron Howard of that era preppy mold, but he uh, is about to head off to college. He's definitely going. Him and Steve are supposed to go together, but Steve is having the second thoughts. Kurt is dead set on it. He's got a, a girlfriend, and right off the bat, he says, I think it would be cool if we just saw other people while we were, uh, while I was at college. Just, you know, because it'll, it'll really prove how much in love we actually are. Like, that is, <laughs> such, first off, such a trope, but also, like, that first year of college, so many people broke up with their boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, from home. That is very, oh my God. even back then, it was cool to see that that was such I know, a that's, thing. That's exactly yeah. what I thought. That still happens today, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, not even they don't even wait for college. Like, 
my poor niece, you know, her boyfriend was like, you know, school's starting in a month and I want to be single for the rest of the summer. Damn. But she bounced, she bounced back immediately. It was funny. I think she ended up like, she's great. She ended up like taking all the stuff and burning it in the backyard <laughs> or something. Oh, I love her. Nice. Um, but yeah, nice. <laughs> I, I also love about this is that um, how well she sort of like calls his bluff about all of this and is like, yeah, you know, I think you're right. We should see other people kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and he's like, I immediately regret this. Decision. <laughs> <laughs> this is... It takes a, a few scenes. They end up going to the sock hop and everything. And, and that's great. I love the sock hop and when they're introduced. And she still has a year to go, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the yeah. whole thing. Is He's off to college, but she still has high school. So I've also had friends in that situation as well, where it's like, I'm going to, you know, what am I going to do? Like, you know, long-distance relationships, right? I also find it interesting um, that she is the... Lori is the sister to Richard Dreyfuss's character, Kurt. And, you know, uh, Steve and Kurt have, like, talked over things, but I don't think Steve has mentioned to Kurt, like, his plan for his sister, you know? And I I found that, like, element interesting. It's not really discussed or talked about, but I was just, like, super, super curious about it. Yeah, I really like that dynamic um, actually between Kurt and his sister because they're only a year apart, right? Mm-hmm. Or a year and a half or something like that. At least a grade and, apart. Um, yeah, and I was in high school with my sister at the same time. And, um, you know, you don't, it's weird. Like, we, it's not like we weren't friendly, but like we just weren't school friends. You know what I'm saying? So I kind of got the same sort of vibe here where it's like they're brother and sister, but they're not really like friends. It just so happens that like she's dating his friend and she's around more and, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I don't know. Again, that dynamic between brother and sister felt better than things you see where it's like, hey, bro, what's up, sis? <laughs> like, hey, talk to mom, see dad, like all this and all that. And it's like, no, they rarely speak to each other in this Yeah. <laughs> So Steve and Lori, as you mentioned, they're on this like weird, tension-filled quest. Um, they wind up at the sock hop, which I guess is like a beginning of the year dance. I don't know. It, I don't know if they have to attend. They seem like they want to attend, but they end up getting called out by uh, who's ever running it or whatever to do like a dance because, as you mentioned, he was class president and she's like about to be head cheerleader and I love it because they're they're in the middle of this like tension and fight and that they kind of have to put on a nice face to do this dance and you could tell like that's how they got to where they are in terms of the high school hierarchy by just at least appearing like the all-american goody goodies which you know I, I found that to be pretty cool yeah I thought the the way that they do the on and off over the course of like you know seven hours of a night but like 40 minutes of our time kind of gives you some insight into what their relationship probably was like uh since no uh you know 90 percent of high school relationships are extremely stupid to begin with like you kind of get the idea that this is this was coming or they'd done this before because it, it's just it's just so on and off the non off and then at a certain point the um the paths diverge and she kind of gets her own storyline, which is really fun. Yeah, I, I love the moment where she was like, um, hey, I, you know, like, you wouldn't touch me, all this stuff. Like, I had to kiss you. I basically had to attack you and all this kind of thing. And, and you know, he's portrayed as such a suave guy where, like, all the girls are like, oh, he's single now, he's single now. But, like, you know, he's, he's just like every other person. Like, he's super insecure, you know, and he's faking it too. So I, I love that about 
their relationship as well, where it's like, you know, she's clearly the best thing that's ever going to happen to him. He's out of his mind for letting her go. And, like, she plays him like a fiddle for the rest of the movie. And of all the storylines in uh, this film, this is the one where, again, we get a lot of screen time on it. But it's hard to describe, like, scene by scene of what happens because it's more just, like, on again, off again, on again, off again. They're not, like, on this adventure. It reminded me of a lot of uh, um, more modern films where it's just, you know, dialogue and happening rather than, like I said, an adventure across town, more or less. Like, their story kind of picks up when all our stories start merging again. And again, she, she splits up and ends up going with... Uh, Bob. Yeah. For a little bit. Bob Falfa. Yeah, Bob Falfa. What a name. <laughs> so th- there we go. George Lucas may have been a great director at one point, but he always had the dumbest fucking names for characters. <laughs> That's the new planet in uh, Rise of Skywalker. I believe it takes place on Bob Falfa. <laughs> that is so true. That's a really good point. <laughs> I, um, the uh, the scene where they, they do finally break up... Um, you, again, you kind of see his true colors a little bit because he gets kind of aggressive, being like, "Oh, you know, it's the last time I'm going to see you for three months. Like, it's time to time to fuck." Uh, and she's just like, he gets, uh, he's very, uh, he's not like holding her down, but he gets very pushy about it. Um, then she just kind of lays there, and, and like he's kind of grossed out by the by saying, "Oh, why aren't you into it?" and stuff like that. And um, I think that was a well acted scene on both their parts. And then speaking of the brother thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. The thing that he says to her that gets him kicked out of the car is something about subtly implying that she learned about sex or like she watched her brother have sex at some point and then that's just mm-hmm. drops and that's the end of that. Yeah, something or like, like masturbated that. or something. Yeah, yeah. That's what okay, I mean. Yeah. Like there's a lot of stuff like that throughout the movie, but that's one of the only ones that is like sort of relevant to any story. But like, yeah, it's like you said you'd never talk about it. There's like all these little inside moments that are, yeah, that come out at the end and end scenes. They just end the scene flat. I, I love it. it. Yeah. But I was going to ask you guys about that. Is that what they're implying? Like, not that she had sex with her brother, right? Like, no, I thought watched him have sex or something like I that. I thought it was just that she watched him jerking off in the bathroom or something like that one time without him knowing or, or, or something, you know, just to see, like, what a penis looks like, or, you know, I don't it's know. It's weird that we know her brother in this film, and he's, like, good friends with her brother, you know. But, yeah, that was that was certainly an interesting thing. But, no, but you guys are right, because it's one of just these little things where you're like, whoa, you ask a question, and then we just we just move on. But that feels, it makes it feel so real. I mean, not maybe specifically that, because I don't really want to think about that, but, you know, I get what it is as a device. Uh, yeah, and that is an interesting scene where, again, she just, like, lays down, and, and yeah. the the tension there is great. Another moment that, like, sticks out about that is later on when uh, the guy's trying to get booze, and the guy just, like, comes out, <laughs> throws him the booze, and the guy just starts shooting at him. It's like, what is going on again? Wait, what? Scene uh, over. I love that. That was such a good little punchline to that whole build-up, and I, that's the place where I got the most super bad vibes oh, yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, that just it, the scene just ends. It's there, so yeah. funny. Oh, man. Like, again, we can probably mention so many high school films uh, while, while talking about this one. Like, every time you say it, I'm like, you know what? You're right. Like, that's, <laughs> that's how it is. And this film does remind me in a weird way of Superbad as well. Um, anything else with... Uh... Ron, Ron Howard's stuff in this film. I mean, get, you know, we don't have to go all the way to the ending because well, I think the endings kind of just converge. But really, like, I love their arc. I love everything um, 
that these two actors are doing, but it's not like a, a scene by scene thing with them. It's just more of like a, a bit of a character study, you know? So anything else from them? Mm-hmm. So it's like the most grounded, I think, right? Like it's, it's the drama. It's like the, you know, it's, that's, this is what the movie keeps coming back to when it needs to sort of reset at times, I feel, because what we do with Toad is like the silliest, like craziest stuff. What we're doing with John is like, you know, it's dramatic, but it's very different stuff going on in his car than this. I feel like it's way more lighthearted with the little kid and everything like that. Um, what we're doing with Kurt, which is my favorite stuff, like with the pharaohs, like that's way off on a whole other um, sort of tone and everything. So I just it's it's just interesting how he knew, you know, like they can't all be going through like the best night of their life. Like some of them are going through the worst night of their life. And that was just like very clever of him to sort of, you know, just use one of the threads for most of that sort of heaviness throughout the movie. Yeah, I agree. So yeah. let's you know, talk about some of the, uh, maybe the, the levity in this film. Terry the Toad, which again is based on uh, George Lucas, he says, as a freshman in high school and he couldn't get girls and he was super nerdy. But uh, kind of, if you see the production stills, George Lucas still kind of looked like this at the time. <laughs> which he had the big, thick Buddy Holly glasses and uh, yeah, <laughs> and the slick just, you know, the wet hair and everything. Yeah, I don't know how he eventually became the John Milner character, but, you know, we'll get there when we talk about him. Uh, So, you know, Terry the Toad, or Terry the Tiger, as he's known at some points, uh, a very fun character, almost pure comedy, but this, I guess, was, you know, the most Superbad-esque of the film, but there's so many films like Superbad, not that I'm complaining, but, yeah, I mean, let's get into it. First thing first, right? Like, uh, Steve gives him his car and that's what starts him on this wild, wild adventure in the film. Yeah. And he, he gets his, he gets his Chevy and, uh, which is, which is a weird thing between, I, it shows their friendship, but it's also like, I guess such a sign of the times. It's just like, Hey, take my car for three months. Don't screw it up too badly. Uh, something (laughs) that would absolutely not ever happen today. Uh, but so yeah, he, um, his plan is just to kind of take the car and live, the life that he wants to live on that night, you know, don't, don't let your dreams be memes. And he kind of McLovin's it up. It really is that archetype of a character. Oh yeah. He it definitely is the McLovin that <laughs> yeah, he even looks like him. Like there's no mistaking. Like, it's a type. It's a certain, it's a certain build, I guess. Um, that is just stereotypically, you know, and I didn't realize it went this far back. To be quite honest. I just never connected the dots, you know, till. You know, your show, Brian, it just brings all kinds of other things to light when you're watching movies for a certain, you know, perspective and stuff. It's like, damn. It's almost like what George Lucas ended up doing with his Star Wars poetry jazz, right? Where things keep repeating in those movies. It's like, well, he kind of created a template for uh, a certain type of movie that is just like out there and repeating itself. So it's kind of, that's kind of great. (laughs) Whereas the ID for... McLovin is like his Excalibur, the car becomes Terry the Toad's Excalibur, and he's just trying to, you know, be someone he's definitely not. Um, I mean, I, again, I maybe it's not my favorite part of this film, but I certainly laughed and loved a lot of the elements here. Yeah, it's each one's like a little bit of vignette to break up the, just throw some levity into some of the, um, you know, the more realistic or the more personal stuff. Uh, he tries to buy liquor, and there's that whole comedy of errors trying to get people outside of the store to do it. Then he's uh, he can't hold his liquor, so he's throwing it up, and the car gets stolen. <laughs> it is like 
the, his vignette is something that, you know, movies and entire movies would be made out of like 10, 15, 20 years later. To this oh, day. yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really love also, I think, just the dynamic between him and Candy Clark just their two characters and i mean she's a lot like you know and back then you know this was sort of like a metaphor i guess of the times is like she is kind of like that car right like they're both like these to toad like these unattainable you know um objects or people or ideals that a guy like him has always been told like you're never gonna get you're never gonna have a car like that you're never gonna have a girl like that no yeah no i i definitely uh, agree with that even while he's in the car and he's trying to be the cool guy people are like essentially saying what are you doing in that kind of car you know like he, he it's not you know it, it, it's really super funny and eventually when Candy comes in the car and the, the stories he's making up to get her about how he has horses that he hunts with, mm-hmm. but he sold them to get a Jeep. Like, I just, I love it. It's a perfect night for horseback riding. I was going with a guy who had horses once. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I had a couple of horses myself. Really? Mm. I used them for hunting. I do a lot of hunting, you know. Hmm. Yeah, deer mostly. Got a couple of bear last year. Yeah, those were good ponies. I had to train them special myself. Took a lot of time. Yeah, do you still have them? We can go for a ride. No, no, I, I had to sell them to get these wheels. And a Jeep. Um, I got a Jeep pickup with four-wheel drive, and it's got a gun rack on it, and I use that for hunting. Mostly. Why do you kill little animals? I think that's terrible. Oh, well, yeah. I figured with bears, though, it's me or them. You know, I, I think you're really neat. Wait a second. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Um, uh, I I don't know. I guess my maybe it's the booze or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, hey, you put uh, it, you know, the people who haven't seen this movie, like if you throw a talking plant into it, like you've got the two main characters from uh, Little Shop Horrors. Like it's that kind of dynamic, <laughs> even that aesthetic kind of. Yep. Or go go uh, stick with the car and John Carpenter's Christine. Kind of is the same that same dynamic of like the the nerd trying to get the unattainable girl and just. He keeps piling on the lies and piling on the lies. And I think with that archetype today, it tends to work out more for some reason than it yeah, does here. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Side note, would you guys say that this is the Jar Jar Binks of this film? Oof. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> it makes me think of, like, him trying to break up episode one with, like, levity Jar Jar scenes. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, he's definitely... <laughs> Like the if there's anyone to me that's a Jar Jar, it would be uh, when we get to uh, Kurtz. It would be the uh, the lead the lead greaser, the lead Pharaoh. That dude was really oh, making some some acting things. <laughs> okay, okay, and we'll get we'll get to the Pharaohs a little bit later. But good call. Uh, was there a favorite um, moment that you had for um, uh, Terry the Toad here? Uh, well, I I did have a favorite one, and I guess I kind of want to pose this question to you guys and, and maybe you've done this on the show before but like what is your high school drinking memory that definitely ends with somebody throwing up because that is oh, forever like that that has been since, <laughs> since the dawn of high school and alcohol like that has definitely been a thing real quickly like I, I you know this is i remember this vividly but it was like a saturday afternoon day party it was sort of a friend of a friend's house so we didn't know any of the people there And when we showed up it was hard liquor and like 
like pretty much like the hard kids in school too like it was a very gangster party and we were not kind of like into gangster rap or rap at all at the time really but we were welcomed and embraced because we because of our friend and sambuca was the flavor of the night and i just remember we were trying we were trying to light it on fire and take shots of fire and just you know my one buddy took so many that like he almost ended up lighting himself on fire and me and the guy who invited us walked him back to our friend's house in the rain, like pouring torrential downpour uh, with him, like stopping periodically to puke along the way. And like that is pretty much, you know, the one that sticks out the most. Uh, you know, he ended up on the bathroom floor after his mom picked him up for the next like 12 hours. And uh, yeah, so that was that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that sounds like <laughs> high school. Up in the rain, not fun. How about, how about you, Chris? Do you have a... Uh vomit story oh Oh, yeah yeah, of course sorry um it wasn't (laughs) me uh but um i do remember a party the 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 person who who did do the throwing up before like hipster was a word that like was thrown around a lot like this kid was 100 percent a hipster like you would see him like openly like reading Kerouac (laughs) so like other people could see like what the cover was he was really into he was really into anything that like uh Ryan Adams or Connor Oberst did uh so he was like the the, basically hipster before we knew that as a word and um he was throwing a party and um he he drank maybe half of a Poland Spring bottle of vodka probably less and uh we just couldn't find him for a while until we found him fortunately on his side not his not his back but with uh him curled up with a lot of puke on his uh on his oh, parents bed. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> it's not great. I don't really have any uh high school um vomit stories. I didn't roll with that kind of crowd or I wasn't that kind of crowd yet. I do have a early college one, so I'll share that because when else am I going to get the opportunity to do this? It wasn't me again, but it was my high school <laughs> friends, so uh, I guess that counts. We'd all got together like a summer between two of the college grades. One of our friends had uh, aunt had an apartment at, in Seaside, and you know when when you are away from your high school friends and you see them again, it's all a fun moment. I had gotten a girlfriend that I was excited about. It was the first time my high school friends were meeting her. Uh, you know we meet at Seaside. Everything's going great. One of my friends. In a typical, like, high school slash college move, he's making mixed drinks, and he's substituting the water or juice aspect of the mixed drink with another alcohol. (laughs) So it was like vodka and whiskey, and they were just very bad drinks. I didn't drink too many of them, but uh, there were some different girls there in terms of girls that one of my very good friends, he wasn't familiar with them, he was really excited to meet them, he... Basically, he drank too much, didn't end up getting with them or anything, but we were all sleeping in the same room, like sleeping bags and maybe on a futon, I'm not sure, so sure, and you know, it's me next to my new girlfriend who they had just met, and my one friend wakes up in the middle of the night, oh, no. opens her suitcase, <laughs> and just starts oh, no. vomiting inside of it. Not oh, a great no. first impression. <laughs> oh no 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 and i just remember like being like dude what are you doing and like him just not even like being aware that i was there and i remember distinctly like i'll never forget this image lifting up her underwear from the bag and it just being like dripping with with oh, vomit God. and i'm like oh <laughs> man 
And then we were obviously all up. I like got him cleaning supplies. <laughs> I'm like, you have to clean some of this, you know. I apologize to her. And I distinctly remember like half an hour later, he's cleaning and he's like, what am I doing? Where am I? And I'm like, you threw up in my girlfriend's bag, man. And he's like, no, I didn't. That, I'm like, what do you think you're cleaning right now? And I, again, I wasn't too mad at him because I knew he would just felt like, you know, the worst human being alive at that point. We're still friends. She forgave him, but I, I'll never forget that. that and, uh, yeah, that's that is rough. <laughs> uh, but unlike all of our stories, uh, Toad boots and rallies. Like, he gets right back into it, and he finds yeah. his car and tries to steal yeah, it back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I like, though, that he um, at, at one point here, I guess my favorite beat is just, like, how, I guess, what are they, out, like, in a field or something? And they're just, like, talking, and they, they're afraid of the goat killer, oh, <laughs> <laughs> which I guess is, like, a chupacabra or something. They run away. And the car gets stolen, which, again, I just think is so funny. Like, idiot leaves the keys in the car. Um, They eventually get the car back. But I I just love that whole interplay with them walking. And she's like, why don't you get your Jeep? And all that kind of stuff. Yeah, all all the lies start to unravel. (laughs) Usually in this film, there's like a storyline. And and maybe, again, maybe you'll enlighten me on one of these. But usually there's like a a really weak storyline that I just like don't want to talk about. And maybe I expected it to be this one, but I actually, again, really enjoyed it. It was really funny to me and it broke up the movie really nicely. Yeah. I think one thing that's really interesting is like how, you know, how well it cuts back and forth between all the different stories. Like, I don't feel like we ever overstay a welcome or anything like that. Like, you know, I, or, nor do I feel like we're dipping in and out too quickly from anywhere either. Like it just, it's got a really great sort of pace to it. And, um, you know, I was actually kind of amazed to to look at the running time and be like, wow, this is almost two hours. Like, like granted, like a lot of it is just kind of like driving around in a car, uh, like shots, people in the backseat, listen to the radio, but it's, I don't know. To me, it just feels like a hangout. And when you're, you know, when you're having time flies, when you're having fun and I'm, Always having fun when I'm watching this. Oh movie. yeah, no, absolutely. So eventually, he—I don't want to say loses the car, beat because I mean he gets the car back after like a big uh, brawl. But uh, eventually, it, it's not his anymore. As um, wow, what's his name? Steve. Steve takes his car back, and he's just reduced back to the toad again. But you know, his his story kind of ends nicely in a sense where. Uh, she seems like she's generally, like, at least giving him a shot in the end, you know? She said she had fun that night. Yeah, she said to call him. Call me, she said. Call me tomorrow night. So, again, it ends up working out for him, more or less. Yeah, I just, I guess I think about any of these movies where, like, someone is just, like, lying about everything. God, what, what's a good, I can't even think of what a good example of one is, but there's a ton of rom-coms where, like, Someone accidentally, oh, like fucking wedding crashers. There's, ah. there's an example. We're like, they're just completely full of shit in a nearly malicious way, like almost throughout the entire <laughs> movie. And then at, at the end, they're just like, ah, whatever. <laughs> that, that, like, th- this at least had a, a question mark to it. And at least they were young kids. But I feel like that's a trope that uh, I've seen way too many times. Yeah, no, fair. That's a good point. Any other um, moments for the Toad that you want to mention? I got a big laugh when he's getting beaten up by the two guys that stole his car. Well, like one has him in like a full Nelson, the other's just punching him in the stomach, and the girl is just hitting one of them on the head with her uh, with the purse. <laughs> uh, 
I, yeah, I, got, I got an actual outline. That was an awesome that. fight scene. It just was a very, very uh, fun fight scene. I like, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into more detail on this later, but um, when this movie turns into the prequel to Fast and Furious at the very end, like how <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's doing like the light, the go light. Like he's the one who's like setting him off there at the end. Yeah. You know, usually, because traditionally when you watch, you know, like drag race movies and stuff, like it's like always, you know, the girlfriend or like the girl or whatever, even in Greece, right? It's like the girl throws her bra in the air or something like that. Like, isn't it? So um, or something. He's, a, but. he's this movie's Paul Abdul then? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. Crossing over. That, that's Keanu, right? I'm not Isn't making that up. In the Paul Abdul, yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. right. I forgot. Yeah, about see, that. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pulling the, the extended universe here, guys. That is a, Come on, that's get on board. Super deep cut. Yeah, it's so deep. I almost forgot about oh, it. Oh man, this is a very uniting movie for the Cage Club universe. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Big thanks to Mike and Chris. Of course, you can hear Chris on his podcast now and again on the Cage Club Podcast Network, and you can hear old episodes of Monkey Club. But that's a topic for another day. Of course, Mike Manzi's on a million shows. Third Time's a Charm, Hanks for the Memories, Original Cage Club, Cruise Club. Just, if there's a Cage Club show out there, there's like a 50% chance he's on it. And guess what? They'll both be back next week to finish our discussion on American Graffiti. And of course, next week, a day before our release on Friday in the United States is Thanksgiving. So part of your homework will be, well, if you didn't watch American Graffiti, watch it, but I hope you did. But since it's a two-parter, uh, it's a kind of a homework-free week. Instead, extra credit assignment, tell me what you're thankful for, just like in school. And those of you in the United States, I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. I hope it's very delicious. I hope there's turkey and stuffing and, I don't know, all that jazz, mashed potatoes, I like the Thanksgiving leftovers. Mm. You know, like a good Thanksgiving leftover sandwich. And I hope all that talk about vomit did not turn you off from the Thanksgiving table. Hopefully there's no vomit in your Thanksgiving future. So let's see. So many great songs to choose from on this soundtrack. Let's go with a classic, one you all know. One maybe more famous from another high school film that we'll talk about another day. Mr. Barry... Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good. Later, dudes. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.